We're in Matthew chapter 20 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled, But First, A Study of the Priorities of Jesus. And in today's text, we're going to see how Jesus talks about and teaches about what it means to be first. Jesus is going to talk today and teach his disciples and to teach us, his followers, what does it mean to be great? You know, in our culture, we tend to think you are great if you accomplish great things. That tends to be our definition of greatness. That if you have great achievements, you're great. That if you have great power, then you are great. That if you have great popularity or you have great wealth, then you are great. And if you have more of those things, more achievements, more championship rings, more money, more uh, power, more popularity, more likes, more followers than anyone else, then you are first. Not only great, but then you are first. But I wonder, are we really great people just because we do great things. I mean, surely we could do great things and not be a great person, right? We could create great works of art or write great music or write great literature or be great at our job. We could accomplish great things and still not be great people. I practiced law for many years before I went to seminary, and I was around some great lawyers that were not very great people. Surely the definition of greatness can't be just achieving great things. Is that really what's a, what makes a person great? Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, John and James ask Jesus for what they think are the greatest places of honor. They want to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. And you know, it's good that they do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is going to have an earthly kingdom, that what uh, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's great that they really believe that. And certainly it's good to be close to Jesus. But to sit at the right and left hand of the ruler is a play for power. It is a play for greatness. It is a play for being first and second. And so Jesus uses this request as an opportunity to define for his followers what actually constitutes true greatness. What does it look like to be first? Listen as Jesus teaches his followers and teaches us. As I read from Matthew 20, I'm going to read verses 20 through 28, and we'll pray together, and then we will jump in. Hear now God's word. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. 
He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called, to, called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Oh, Father, please teach us now. Holy Spirit, please be willing to use these words that you inspired through Matthew to teach followers of Jesus today, what it means to be great, what it means to be first. Reorient our minds and our hearts and our thinking. Reorient the way that we live our lives. Please come and do that now. And we ask that you'd be willing to do it even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Boy, I can hear it right now. I can imagine it in my mind. Of course, they're speaking in Aramaic, but you know somebody said, Dude, you got your mom to go and ask Jesus to have a special place to sit in his kingdom? Are you kidding me? Out of ten disciples, somebody said something like that, right? And you can imagine James and John, it wasn't us, it was her idea, she's the one who went and did it. I mean, can you imagine what the disciples would have said? Well, did she also ask Jesus to make sure you eat your vegetables in the kingdom and to, and to change your underwear every day so that you have a clean pair on when the kingdom comes? Did she ask that too? Whoo, this is a mess here, isn't it? And in, and in all honesty, we don't know if this was her idea or if her sons put her up to it. We do know that in Jewish tradition, older women had a special place of honor and respect that younger women did not hold. And older women could get away with making requests that men would probably not ever make. Read the parable of the persistent widow and it kind of illustrates that for you. So perhaps this was her idea. And it is true that one way women could wield great power in a patriarchal society was to control things through their sons. It's often how they worked. However, it's interesting, if you read Mark's account of what happened, he doesn't even mention her at all. Mark just talks about James and John coming and making this request. So Mark seems to be much more focused on the brothers. Now, Mark got his information from Peter. And if you think about who's being edged out here, I mean, Peter, James, and John are already top three. So if they're asking for place one and place two, then Peter's the odd man out, right? So, of course, he's saying, yeah, these two are the ones. They were the scoundrels. They're the ones that were trying to, to get this place of honor, but we don't know if it's the mom prompting this or if it's the boys. But what we do know is that all of these folks had a skewed view of what it means to be first. They had wrong views about what it means 
to be great. Maybe you're here today, and just like the ten, you're bothered that others are getting ahead of you. That others seem to be reaching for what's first. That others seem to be doing and achieving what is great. Others seem to be getting there first. They're getting the positions or asking the positions or knocking on the door the position that you wanted. Well, Jesus calls all these folks together and he calls us and he teaches us today what it means to be first. What it really means to be great. And it's interesting, we're going to see the way Jesus teaches is he uses this positive example and a negative example. Right? Jesus says, not this, but this. Right? Doctors do that. They say it could be this whole list of things and they eliminate things. Not this, not this, not this, so it must be this. Folks, where I grew up, sometimes if they're giving you directions, right, they'll be giving you directions. They'll say, you turn, you know where that road is next to Boogie Johnson's bait shop? I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, that ain't it. You keep on going down the road a little ways and then turn the next turn, right? So Jesus is saying, that ain't it, but this is it, all right? So let's look at that together. First, what's the, the negative example? That this is not greatness. Then the positive example, this is greatness. Let's look at that together. Number one, what is the example of the wrong view? What is Jesus saying? It's not like this. You see it there in verses 25 and 26, right? Jesus called them to him and said, you know, and he's saying, look, this is our experience. You know this is true, right? You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, you could also read that the rulers of the, the nations, the rulers of all the people, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. So Jesus is saying, hey, you see that? You see how the rulers of this world act? That ain't it. That is, that is not the way we define greatness in the kingdom of God. Because the leaders, the rulers of this world, those who are first, lord it over others. That's the way of the world, isn't it? The way of the world is to seek the highest possible place and then make full use of that authority, the authority that that place gives, to take advantage of things, to make life better for you or for those who are close to you. It's the way it works in the world, isn't it? In the world, human authority is seldom, if ever, exercised without an element of selfishness. In fact, without Christ... We are actually slaves to our own self-centeredness. Jesus is saying that's not what greatness looks like. It's not service of self. It's not lording it over people. Now let's be careful here. Jesus is not saying that there should be no human authority in the world or in the church. And people have read him as saying this here. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What is he saying? Jesus is critiquing the misuse of power that inevitably seems to come in the rulers of this world. And Jesus is saying that the way the rulers, the way the authorities, the way the leaders wield their power in this world is not how we're supposed to do it among the people 
of God. So let's just stop right there and ask ourselves, do we do that? Do we view the world that way? Do we live our lives thinking and acting like doing great things is what will make us great? Is that what we dwell on? Do we try to line everything up so that we'll get the highest place, so that we'll be first place as the world defines it? Some of us would never do that for ourselves. I would never do that for myself. But boy, you get their kids involved like this mom. Woo, then parents will come up there at the school if you give their child a grade that they didn't think they should get. You're a coach and you don't start my kid, then I'm going to be up there. If my kid's not getting the playing time I think he or she deserves, boy, you're going to hear about it. I would never seek for myself, but I'll seek for my kids. This woman's doing that, isn't she? We do it in the church as well, don't we? It's not just out there in the world. In the church, we often define greatness by what? What do people always ask? How many people go to your church? Numbers, we can count them right? People ask me as a minister, how many people do you have on your staff? And for a long time I said one, and that was just me, right? How big is your budget? How much money do you collect in a year? And it's not a problem to measure those things or to group into categories, but to think that the higher those numbers are, the greater you are, is a mistake. Jesus says that's wrong thinking. That that's not the way he defines greatness. It's not the way he defines being first. And so we have to own that. When we see it in our own hearts, this selfish ambition, this pride of place, this desire to be thought of as great, to wield great power, to lord it over other people. We have to see this in our own hearts. It's the first thing Jesus does. He gives us this example of the wrong view. Not like this. But secondly, Jesus gives the example of the right view. Not this, but this. He gives us an example. This is the way we're supposed to think in the kingdom of God. As followers of Jesus... This is what it looks like to be great. This is what it looks like to be first. This is what it looks like in the kingdom of God for followers of Jesus to be great. What does he say? Pick up in verse 26. Jesus says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Do you see what he does there? He says, Whoever would be great would be a servant. And if you were to be first, you would be the greatest, then you have to serve the most of all. And so he uses that term slave there. Even as, and here's the example he gives, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Boy, that indicts these guys, doesn't it? 
They want the places of honor, and they're asking the one who gave up the place of honor in heaven. Think about that. <laughs> I wonder if Jesus ever got frustrated. Like, Are you paying attention to anything that's going on here? Like just a couple of chapters earlier, I brought a child in your midst and said, who's the greatest in the heaven? The one that's humble like this child. This just happened a few days ago. The greatest is the one that is, that is humble like this child, the one who trusts the Father like this child. And here they come and make these requests to sit at the right and left hand to the one who gave up sitting at the right hand of God to come here and to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Oh my. Jesus says to be great is to be a servant. And to be first is the one who serves the most of all. You know, in God's kingdom, the greatest are those, are those who serve others. Those who seek not to be served, but they're always seeking to serve other people. Think about that contrast with the way the world thinks of greatness. Greatness in this world is typically measured by how many people serve you. But greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by how many people you serve. So let me ask you. Which characterizes you? More often than not, are you seeking to be served or to serve? Who, who are you serving? Where do you serve? So for some of us, it, it's at work, and we work really hard to serve there. Some of us expect to be served at work. For some of us, I suppose it's a little bit of both. What about at home? Some of us feel like all we do is serve at home. Some of us seem to be seem to expect to be served at home. That's just how all this works, right? It's that way in the church as well, isn't it? That some of us really want to be served. You know, typically when people come and look at our church, the first question they ask is not, how can I serve? Usually they say, what do you have for me? What do you have for my family? And there's nothing wrong with that. We certainly want to offer something, and that's why we ask everybody here at Redeemer Church that it will be one time a week that you're poured into, because we want people to be poured into. But then there will also be at least one time a week that you're pouring out into somebody else. And this is the reason for that, because followers of Jesus are not seeking to be served, but they're seeking to serve other people. And that's what greatness looks like. That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. Not like this, but like this. Well, if you've been here at Redeemer Church for a while, you know there's got to be one more point to a sermon. I mean, you've got to have three points to a sermon, right? But even more than that, so far all we've said is be a servant. And I hope if you've been here for a while, you're thinking, okay, there's got to be something more because we've, we've talked about B messages are not wrong in themselves. They are wrong by themselves, right? 
It's not wrong to say be a certain way. God's word says to be a certain way. Be forgiving. Be loving. Be a servant. God's word says that all the time. The problem is if we just leave that command by itself, because God's word doesn't do that. Remember the way we've learned it in the past? We've said what we do has to be driven by what is true. Right? It's the old imperatives and indicatives, if you want to get into grammar with me. I see some of my grammar folks out there. Imperatives are commands. They're always based on indicatives, on what is true. So what does Jesus say that is true here? Here's why this is important to ask this question. Because we want to ask, what is it that I need to do in order to be a servant? How does that work? How do I do this? How can I be a servant? Because if I'm honest left to my own devices I don't want to serve other people I want to be served that's my natural inclination I mean be honest half the time we serve somebody else's so they're in our debt and they'll serve us back and some of us are even hesitant to accept service from others because then we feel obligated that we're gonna have to serve them so we don't even want to accept service from other people so how do we do this? If that's my heart, how can I be a servant as Jesus calls me to be? Well, there are th three things I think we're called to see here in the text. If this is the third point, I guess these are A, B, and C under that third point. How do I do this? How am I a servant? What's the empowerment for it? Little A. First, we need to see our tendency. We need to own the fact that in my heart, I really long to be served more than I long to serve. That's our tendency. My natural inclination is I want for me, right? My natural tendency is I'm self-centered. We need to see that and own that. Little B, we need to see that that's the wrong view. That is not the way we should be. Jesus has been teaching about that and talking about that and telling us why. So we need to see that's our tendency. We need, we need to see that's the wrong view. I've been operating the wrong way. So what's the third thing I do? Little C. We need to see our ransom. We need to see our ransom. You see it there in verse 28, right? Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve... And to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, we were all slaves to our own self-centeredness. We're all slaves to self. And Jesus frees us from our self-centeredness. He paid the price for our self-centeredness on the cross. He's taken the punishment for that. So he's paid the ransom. But he's paid so that we're, we're free. So that we don't have to just live for ourselves. But we can live for him who died for us. We can live for him who gave up so much for us, who did so much to serve us. And as we see that ransom that he paid, it empowers us. Because you see, 
We're freed from our self-centeredness as we die to ourselves. And allow the Spirit of Christ, allow the Spirit of that one who accomplished such great things to come and to live in us and to lead in us and to form Christ in us. You already said it this morning, Philippians 2. Did you catch what it said there in verse 5 when we were looking up? On the screen, it said, have this mind among yourselves. Oh, good, we've got it. Which is yours in Christ, that you can have this kind of mindset when you're in Christ Jesus, when we're in Christ, when he's in us by his spirit. That Galatians 2.20 text, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is, I'm dying to myself, my self-centeredness. So I'm fighting my flesh and allowing the Spirit of Christ to, to lead me. There, there's freedom there from my selfishness, from my self-centeredness. Where do we see that in the text? I think you see it in verse 22. Did you catch it there? Remember, they've asked to sit at his right and his left hand. And in verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, what's this reference that Jesus is making? Well, in the Old Testament, drinking the cup usually refers to some kind of calamity or enduring some kind of hardship, typically because of the wrath of God. God's wrath is involved in it in some way. But in the New Testament, we haven't really seen Jesus talk about the cup up till this point. But in a short time, he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And all four gospel accounts have Jesus praying what? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but your will be done. Jesus mentions the cup in the garden. He mentions it again. When the folks come and they're about to arrest him, do you remember what happened? Peter pulls out the sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, who's a servant of the high priest. You remember what Jesus says to him in John chapter 18 and verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then what happens? Jesus is arrested. The next day he's put on trial. He's condemned. He goes out and he dies on a cross. And then three days later rises again from the dead. The cup that Jesus is to drink is his arrest and his death. And he says, you have to drink the same cup that I drink. And I looked at this and I thought, man, poor James and John. They're going to have to die and I hate that for them. And that's, uh, I mean, I, you know. And you keep reading and you see that they do face persecution for following Jesus. I say, man, that's awful that they had to do that. But you know, it's not just James and John that have to die. All followers of Jesus must die to ourselves. The cup that all disciples share with Jesus 
is death. Not that we die on a cross or give ourselves as a ransom for other people, but dying to ourselves. Jesus has said just a few days before this in Matthew 16, down around verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, what did he say? Let him deny himself and take up his cross. We tend to read that in light of Jesus. going. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He's saying, if anybody wants to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to die to yourself. The cross was a death sentence. If any man would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I wonder how you hear that. If I'm honest, it's hard for me to hear. I think, I don't want to die to myself. It scares us to die to ourselves. I mean, if I don't look out for me, who's going to look out for me? If I don't look out for me and see that I am served, <laughs> who will look out for me and see that I'm served? God will. Remember Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, just a few sermons ago? Jesus said, I know you need all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which, by the way, comes from dying to ourselves. And all these things will be added to you as well. So seek the kingdom. But this idea of dying to self, I'm not really sure I want to lose myself in Jesus, right? I've got all these ideas about what I think I should do and should be. I'm not sure I want to give those things up. I'm not sure I want to surrender. I'm not really sure I want to die to myself. It's interesting. Jesus anticipates that. We talked about Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You know what he says in verse 25? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his, his life for my sake will find it. God, Jesus, you're just talking riddles. If you save your life, if I try to save my life, I'm going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know if I'm going to find myself in Jesus or not. I've seen some people in Jesus. They're kind of weird. Hesitant to surrender. I don't think anybody explains this any better than C.S. Lewis. If you've read his classic, Mere Christianity, it's a great book. In the very last chapter of Mere Christianity, all these chapters are short because they were originally radio addresses. And he talks about our hesitancy to die to ourselves and to live for Christ, to find ourselves in him. Listen to how Lewis explains it. He says this, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men than you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in him. 
It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I am dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. And he goes on to talk about how that's true. And then he says, I am not in my most natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I begin to have a real personality of my own. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors that have been. How gloriously different are the saints. But there must be a real giving up of self. And Christ will indeed give you a real personality. Not like this, but like this. Not like this. Not the mold that the world tries to squeeze you into, not the mold that the world tries to conform us into where we're slaves to ourselves, but like this, freedom from self, not looking to be served, but to serve. And we do that by seeing what Jesus did for us, dying as a ransom for our self-centeredness, so that we might be free to die to our own selfish desires and actually become who he created us to be. Who knows? We might actually become great. I call you, die to yourself and find yourself in him. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Oh, Heavenly Father, these are hard words. Many of us are afraid to surrender, to give up control to you. Some of us, it's our natural inclination. Some of us, because of things that have happened to us and people we've given control before that wronged us. Thank you that you know how the rulers of this world are and that you call us to something different. We're afraid to turn loose of what we know. But I pray that you would help us to see the gentleness and grace and mercy of Jesus. Who did not consider even equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But that he was willing to give up power, give up authority. He was willing to give up prestige and honor in order to take on the form of a servant. That he would serve even the point of giving his life to death. That he would not seek to be served, but that he would serve and give his life for others. We ask you, form Christ in us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.